Good morning. Certainly would like to welcome everyone here this morning, especially our visitors that are present. We do have a couple visitors from Oklahoma this week. Today starts our gospel meeting with Dane Shepherd, and we're certainly fortunate and, and thankful that him and Cindy have made it our way for the week. It's going to be a great week. We certainly would welcome everyone back for the whole week. We'll meet each evening. Today we'll meet at 3 p.m. this afternoon, and then each evening this week will be at 7 p.m. We'll conclude on Friday evening at 7 p.m. with our annual singing. And again, certainly would encourage and welcome everyone back at those times, and like I say, it will be beneficial, be a great week, and certainly edifying. At this point in time, why don't we begin with the word of prayer. Our dear God and Father in heaven, we come to you thankful to you for this beautiful Lord's Day. Thankful to you for the privilege that you've given us to come together and, and worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that everything said and done here at this place will always be done in accordance to your word and acceptable to your sight. We're thankful for Dane and, and Sean and the work that they do and we pray that they will always stand for the truth and proclaim thy gospel. We ask that your blessings continue to be upon them and their families. We ask that you watch over each of us throughout this week. We pray for the success of this meeting. We ask that you keep us safe and well. We're especially thankful for your son and his great sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning to all. It's uh, such a blessing to be here with you, and I look forward to our week together as we explore worship. And we're going to spend a lot of time today on explaining why we do the things the way that we do them. And so it's good to be with you. May God bless us in our efforts and encourage us in this time together. As we Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul tells the church there, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so let's let this word of Christ dwell in us richly as we sing, I have a home prepared where the saints abide just over in the glory land. Let's join our voices together as we encourage one another. I've a home prepared where the saints abide Just over in the glory land 
And I long to be by my Savior's side, just over in the glory land. Just over in the glory land, I'll join the happy angel band. Just over in the glory land, just over in the glory land, there with the mighty host I'll stand, just over in the glory land. With the blood-washed throng, I will shout and sing, just over in the glory land. Glad hosannas to Christ our Lord and King, just over in the glory land. Just over in the glory land, there with a happy angel band, just over in the glory land, just over in the glory land, there with a mighty host I'll stand, just over in the glory land. Congregational singing. It's different. It's not like most religious music because it is a cappella or non-instrumental, except for maybe Eastern Orthodox, the Mennonites, Primitive Baptists, and a few others. Historian Everett Ferguson says this, the very term used in musical circles for unaccompanied singing sums up the evidence of church history. A cappella comes from the Latin by the way of Italian and means in the style of the church, as done in the church. The classical form of church music is unaccompanied singing or song. So God has always specified the instruments that's used in worship. He has not left that up to our choice. What instrument did New Testament Christians use? And why don't we use instruments? What instrument did they use? They certainly used an instrument. Well, let's take a look at some scriptures. Ephesians 5 at verse 18, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the first thing, first requirement. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with the heart to the Lord. And uh, that parallel passage in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell within you, richly dwell within you. Well, that's the first thing. We'll talk more about that as we go on. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So Paul clearly says that we all are to sing, or if you will, 
pluck with an instrument. That's every member. And the instrument is the heart. The results of playing the heart is vocal expression. We are to sing and accompany our voices with the heart. Everyone has the instrument of the heart and the ability to play it. That's the way it's always been. We all have that ability. To do or use anything differently is to presume that we know better than the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit. As God wanted and specified through the Holy Spirit and his apostles. You see, the voice connected to the heart is the instrument God has given Christians to worship him. And I would like to make a comment regarding the use of tuning devices and a cappella or non-instrumental singing. Some have suggested in a defense of using instruments in worship that using a tuning device, such as a pitch pipe, uh, is the same as using instrumental accompaniment. As a music educator taught for 32 years, this is contrary to past and present practice in the music world. Secular performing groups sing songs without accompaniment. They sing a cappella. And they use some source to get a pitch in order to be able to sing by. And no one then ever concludes that getting the pitch is part of the actual performance or singing. Whether it's from a piano or some other device. In such circumstances, a pitching device is only seen or recognized as an aid in order to support what is needed to sing without instruments. It's simply a tuning device and not an instrument. It's a standard that we go by in order to be able to do what we do. Using a pitching device then to obtain a pitch in our assemblies is not against the New Testament, it does not violate it, or scripture or practice. Well, let's just take a few moments, a few moments to give a brief, and I do emphasize the word brief, history of what we have in song. Well, in the Old Testament, we have what we call monophony, monophony, same sound. Uh, we find it with and without instruments. It includes what we call chant, a call and then an answer back, or antiphonal or echo singing back and forth. In Exodus, the 15th chapter, we find an example of this. As we look at verse 1, we read, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. 
The context of this is they have just seen the dead bodies of the Egyptians on the shore. This song is a response to the deliverance. That judgment of God was a comfort to them and they expressed it in song. It was a response to what God had done. And then, in verse 20, Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing. Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. So we see some, something happening here and then something answering back. An example of a call and a response is found in Psalm 136, 1 through 3. It seems like someone issues something and then someone answers back. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. The answer is for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods. And the answer comes back for his loving kindness, his steadfast love, his mercies are everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his loving kindness is everlasting. And we can also look at the Psalms and we note that they have subtitles added in, and they call for the use of a specific instrument with a selected performing group. For the choir director upon an eight-stringed lyre, a psalm of David. And as we think about that Old Testament formal worship in the temple in Jerusalem, it included a professional choir and instruments chosen by God's authority. As we look in 1 Chronicles 25 at verse 1, moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and of Haman and Jeduthun, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. Verse 6, all of these were under the direction of their father to sing in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres for the service of the house of God with and Asaph, Jeduthun, and Haman were under the direction of the king. Their number were trained their number who were trained in singing to the Lord with their relatives, all who were skillful, was 288. So, as we look at this, to me, the focus is not on the instruments. It's on prophesying, singing, serving the Lord. No one is edified by mere sound. Just by you hearing music, sound is not edifying. And this is not like the instrumental music that we hear today so often in the religious world. It probably would sound very strange to us. Well, in the New Testament, 
There was monophony, but without instruments. Jesus did away with the formal temple worship of Israel that was located specifically in Jerusalem, in the temple, when he brought in the new covenant. As he tells the woman at the well about that time that's coming in John 4, verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. This is going to be universal worship. Verse 23, but an hour is coming and now is where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Yes, in that new covenant. It's not going to be like it was before. The old physical temple and priesthood and nation have been replaced with the spiritual and universal worship that we find in the New Testament church. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you, Corinthians, are a temple of God? They're over in Greece. They're not in Jerusalem. They're a local work. But they are a temple of God. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, to these suffering, scattered Christians, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. They're nowhere near Palestine. A people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. No, it's a new covenant, a new temple, a new priesthood, a new nation, a universal one. And there are explicit statements by what we would call early Christian writers that show Christians did not use instrumental music. And again, Everett Ferguson in his book, A Cappella Music, quotes uh, Theodoret, a bishop of Cyrus in Syria around the year AD 400. And he's answering a question about the inclusion of instrumental music in the old law and its absence in the Christian worship. The question he proposes is this, if songs were invented by unbelievers to seduce men, but were allowed to those under the law on account of their childish state, why do those who have received the perfect teaching of grace in their churches still use songs just like the children under the law? They sang under the old law, and now they sang under the new, and, but why it was under the old law, why is it still used in the new? Seems to be the question. And his answer is interesting. It is not simple singing that belongs to the childish state. Under the old law, it was just a shadow of things to come. The real state, the mature state, of course, is the new covenant. It is not simple singing that belongs to the childish state, but singing with lifeless instruments, with dancing and with clappers. Hence, 
the use of such instruments and the others that belong to the child estate is excluded from singing in the churches. And simple singing is left, for it awakens the soul to a fervent desire for that which is desired or described in the songs. So song worship in the New Testament included chant or unity singing, call and answer or reciprocal singing, and echo singing as well. Let's look at a modern example of chant, how you might notate it. In chanting, it freely follows the text. There's no regular music meter. In other words, you're not going to tap your toe to this. There will be no moving of the arm in a steady beat. You're going to go flowing with the rhythm and meter of the lyrics. Maybe like this. By Christ redeemed in Christ restored, we keep the supper of the word. Something like that. An idea of a chant. Different but not too different from what we do. And as time progressed then, and apostasy came, polyphonic singing. Poly means many, phony, sounds. Polyphonic singing developed. It was like many voice parts that were like separate melodies that were used. And their difficulty required trained singers, and so it becomes an art in itself and is often performed by professional groups. And as a result, congregational singing just faded into the background or was non-existent. And we have an example of this in the sevenfold of the Lord bless you and keep you. You could see where these separate parts enter at different times and they form their own melodies, much more difficult say and to follow. That's why we don't use it very much. We kind of imitate it a little bit, but we don't follow that really very much. Next, developed homophonic music. And that's where we had many sounds, but they're sung simultaneously with a melody and harmonizing part. So it keeps the tradition of this polyphony, this many sounds, more than one sound at a time, but it's easier to sing. And during the Protestant Reformation, there was a revival then of congregational singing because of this. And many of those reformers emphasized congregational singing. And now psalms and hymns were sung with voices of different pitches, but with the same rhythm, the rhythm making it easier to sing with many parts. And this is the tradition that we have today. And we rarely use or practice true antiphonal or responsorial singing due to the idea that we have access to written music. And so we do 
show some kind of this echo back and forth when we sing uh, and when we have leads. We sing, each day I'll do, and what do we hear? Each day I'll do, a golden deed, a golden deed. So we do kind of use echo, a call and answering back and forth. But it's, it's limited, and it's uh, easy to perform. As we look at the tradition that we have, we show four parts basically happening at the same time. We've got the melody. Now, if you sing the melody, the tune, what the song leader sings, you're following those notes. That's where you're reading from most of the time. And so if you wondered about that, then that's where you're going to look at those top notes on each system. And then beneath that, we have stacked other sounds. We have parts. We have the bass. On the bottom, tenor is for the higher men's voices. Then we have alto underneath that soprano or melody. And why do we have this tradition? Why? Good question. Glad you asked. We like it. We find that a melody hung with, sung with rather, with harmony, is more expressive and effective than just singing the melody alone. Now, there's nothing wrong with singing the melody alone, absolutely. And other cultures do that. I was talking to someone from Guatemala, and he expressed that he enjoyed, he found it more meaningful singing in harmony. That wasn't his background, and I asked him why. He, he thought he could feel the mood as more expressive. What they did back in Guatemala, they all sang the melody, the tune, and they sang it fast. So he expressed his desire for that. Let us encourage one another then in singing in harmony for the beauty of the earth. Do, for the beauty of the earth, for the glory of the skies. For the love which from our birth over and around us lies, Lord of all earthy we raise this our hymn of grateful praise for thy church that. Sacrifice. 
a tradition. We have a tradition that demands that we continue to learn about music and singing and to provide training to perpetuate it. I'm very thankful for the opportunity to be here. I'm thankful for the elders, the leadership you have here that have that vision, that understand this very important point. We like to sing in harmony, but it demands something of us and able to do that, in order to do that with ability. You see, we're in, in our culture, we are in a battle to save and maintain New Testament song worship. And we want to do that to the best of our ability. Well, some reasons. As we conclude here, some reasons why New Testament song worship is unique. It's because it's non-instrumental and different in purpose. Its purpose is to praise God and to teach others and admonish others. It's not for the purpose of entertainment or a drawing a crowd. We do not worship to please ourselves, but to please our Creator. We don't do it just because it feels good. Now, there's nothing wrong with it feeling good. No, no. But that's not the primary reason we do it. We worship not only in spirit, but we worship in truth. We desire to grow in the knowledge of God and to delight in Him, not in the worship experience itself. Although when we worship in spirit and truth and we delight in him, we will experience something very good. We will feel it. Our emotions will be involved. Our will will be involved in our worship, and it will change us. Song worship is unique because musical beauty is not the prime requisite. The melody in the heart of the worshiper is far more important. And one does not need to be musically talented or tra a trained musician to participate because psalm worship is not a demonstration of our talent, but it's a demonstration of our faith. That's what's important. And God will be the ultimate judge and audience. It's different because psalm worship is appointed by God and not man. And we don't do it because it's just tradition. It's what's popular to do. We do not do it because we may be good at it or we enjoy doing it. But we want to please the one we worship and we want to edify others. It's unique because it must be rendered in the proper spirit or it ceases to be worship. You see, mere activity alone is not acceptable worship within itself. You know, in a lot of places, there's a lot of activity. 
It doesn't necessarily mean it's worship in spirit and in truth. And then acting out of a desire to influence other or, or others or a concern for others or mere commitment to tradition or sentiment is not worship that's in spirit and in truth. It must be rendered in the proper spirit. Congregational worship is different because understanding is necessary, so necessary. And we want to really encourage that aspect understanding. This requires then individual as well as collective effort in knowing the content and the message of what is sung. I said this one time and well, I've said it many times but I said it one time in particular and one individual just couldn't get past it but maybe I could explain. We are people of two books That may sound strange, but isn't it true that when we assemble, we open to the Bible and the hymnal, whether we project it or open it? And so one is inspired of God, and the other not so much. Yet we open them and participate from them when we meet. What we sing should be understood and reflect the message and sentiment of Scripture. Oh, yes, it must. Which, think of it this way, just as the preacher is uninspired when he speaks, yet he speaks from the word of God with authority, doesn't he? Because it's from the word of God. So, too, we must speak, admonish, and teach in song. And we will talk more about that as we go through the meeting. What does that do to song worship then? What does that do to the responsibility involved in song worship? Time must be taken to discover and know the words and message of what we say. Scriptural song worship is unique for it involves everyone. It's not done by proxy. It's not the responsibility of a a leader or a group, certain group of people or individuals. In order to edify and teach and admonish one another, as directed by God, every member shares in song worship. Now, we may have physical limitations. I have worshiped with those who had to have oxygen and could not take a, enough breath in order to sing out. But I worshiped with them. They played their instrument. It was there. And maybe there I've seen, I've been in an assembly and worshiped with those who could not utter anything, but they used their hands in signing.
even though we do not need to be talented to accomplish congregational song worship, even a simple hymn or a psalm requires the coordination of pitch, rhythm, and the words, doesn't it? You got to know something. This takes continual effort by the congregation to maintain edifying and unifying worship. And you know, nothing contributes more to a sense of awe than singing that is well done or done with the thoughtful best. We know that mediocre singing or poor singing drains the reverence out of our worship. And so singing that is lacking will not help us grow closer or sense God's presence or perceive the beauty of the words that are sung. Half-hearted singing is not a good defense for non-instrumental worship. While good singing alone may not mean that we have worshiped in spirit and truth, often, though, it, it shows the spiritual vitality of a congregation as it's reflected in song worship. And I think that's what visitors notice, don't they? They notice that. They notice the vitality with which you sing. And that catches their attention. So that's the first step that we could do in influencing others in evangelism is with our singing, our vitality, our effort, our desire, our zeal. It says, you know, we really want to be here. I really want to be here. You look around at others and they're into it, they're singing. They want to be here. That's encouraging. It says we're serious about what we're doing. As Frank Walton said, the fervency of proper worship and song displays the spiritual energy of our souls. What's the spiritual energy of your soul? How do you show it? How real and how great God is to us. How vital our faith is. How grateful we are to our great God. Scriptural song worship is different for the music of the church is truly real. You see, we sing songs about real person, real places, real things, real events, and they carry living messages to each of us. If you think about the songs of the world, they're just mere fantasy with no eternal value. The music of the world can never meet the true needs of the soul. That's what we're talking about. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs speak of the reality of unseen things above and carry their messages, their living messages to each one of us. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs speak of the reality of unseen things above and their importance here 
below. Well, New Testament song worship is unique for it provides a small foretaste of heaven. Our worship includes an anticipation of the consummation of all things. The Lord's Supper is an anticipation as well. Our preaching is an anticipation. Our prayers anticipate the end of it all. You know, if, we, if you look at Revelation, it reveals groups, great multitudes in heaven, which no man can number, and they're praising and worshiping God. Interesting, I don't know, I, I read through it a lot, but looking for individuals, one individual worshiping in Revelation. Seems to be a lot of, a lot of things happening together. There's something about that togetherness. When we assemble, we can know and relate to and worship God in ways we cannot alone. That's why we need each other. We need each other. Everyone. There's a participation in the assembled worship which is more intense than the individual passion of anyone by themselves. As one, someone said, even though worship occurs within the heart, God has so created man that there are deeper delights and more intense inspiration in the worshiping assembly than in individual devotion. We know that David worshiped God individually. And individual, this is not to play down individual worship. It's a simple, it's essential. Why? Because when I come here, I bring something with me. I don't go to worship. I bring my worship with me when I assemble. If I go to worship, meaning I go there and that's the only time that I worship, that's the only time I sing, that's the only time I pray, that's the only time I give or do anything, I miss the point. I bring my relationship with God, my worship, to the collective worship. And there, things can really happen. Grateful for your attention this morning. Thank you so much. Look forward to today and the week. Encourage you in what you're doing. God bless you. We're dismissed. <laughs>